Welcome to the Ad Watchers, a podcast brought to you by the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs. We're a team of attorneys with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the truthfulness and accuracy of national advertising campaigns. I'm Hal Hodes. And I'm Latoya Sutton. To make sure advertisers can back up what they're telling consumers, we don't just take ads at face value. We put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law is simple. It's the execution that's hard. Welcome back to another episode of Ad Watchers, NAD's podcast that gives a view into how our organization reviews claims and applies advertising law. If you missed any of our previous episodes, don't forget to check them out later. They're available wherever you're listening to this. Hi, Hal. Hi, Latoya. What are we talking about today? Today, we're going to talk about the various messages conveyed by an advertisement. Uh, Really, we're going to focus on the implied messages, right? Uh, In a bit, we're going to be joined by a special guest, Professor Meg Campbell of University of California, Riverside, to provide a bit of deeper understanding into how consumers take in and understand advertising messages. But uh, first, we wanted to chat about NAD's process for figuring out what messages are conveyed by an advertisement. Sure. At NAD, you know, in, in general, advertisers are required to have a reasonable basis for all messages that are conveyed in their advertising, regardless of whether they are express claims or implied claims and regardless of whether the advertiser intended to convey that particular message. This has been a long-standing rule. It's reflected in the FTC's 1983 policy statement on deception, and it's been reiterated over the years in numerous NAD cases. Yeah, it's a pretty straightforward rule. That's the easy part. Um, But actually figuring out what message or messages are conveyed uh, by an advertisement Uh, And and knowing what messages need support and evidence, uh, that's really the hard part. So let's start at the beginning of what we actually do here at NAD. Um, When we're deciding what messages are reasonably conveyed, you know, in advertising in a particular commercial or print ad or social media ad, we always look at the advertising in context to figure out what you know, the consumer is taking away. Um, Sometimes that can be a complicated process and sometimes it can be a little bit easier because sometimes advertisers will provide survey evidence um, where they conducted a reliable survey that asked consumers what messages they take away from that advertisement. Um, Generally, if a reliable survey demonstrates that 20% of respondents took away an unsupported message, that would indicate that the reasonable consumer might be misled by the advertising. To be clear, that's not a hard or fast rule, and there's a lot to discuss when it comes to consumer surveys. Don't worry, those surveys will be the subject of a future Ad Watchers episode, so we'll dive into those um, pretty soon. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's a whole ball of wax uh, separate from sort of how, how we look at these advertisements and determine the messages conveyed ourselves. And, and we often don't have a survey. So in the absence of reliable evidence, 
of how consumers understand a given ad. We, we often say that we'll step into the shoes of the consumer and, and make the determination, right? To determine what messages are conveyed by, by an advertisement. So a question we're often asked is, is you know, what does that mean? Like when you're stepping in the shoes of the consumer, that, you know, it's pretty vague. Uh, uh, what is that process all about? Well, you know, first, what it doesn't mean is that, you know, I become LaToya, queen of advertising, and I decree that my personal interpretation is, you know, necessarily what some singular, idealized, reasonable consumer would believe. You know, I, I wish I could wear that crown, but that's not what it, <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, it calls for, you know, a bit of, you know, maybe personal disassociation, basically, and looking at the claim from a broader perspective to, to, to determine kind of the range of messages that could be reasonably conveyed to the audience. Latoya, queen of advertising, first of her name. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, Game of Thrones reference right there for those who didn't watch. Uh, so, so in a sense, I guess, what you're saying is, is there isn't one reasonable consumer, uh, LaToya, but there's multiple reasonable points of view. And so when we are trying to step into the shoes of the consumer, we're really trying to step into the shoes of consumers. And, you know, we acknowledge, or at least we're acknowledging now, I'm acknowledging now, that in deciding what is and isn't reasonable, it's an exercise, it's an approximation. And, you know, us doing so is kind of necessary, right? I'd say it's untenable for us to require every advertiser to have a survey for every advertisement to determine every message that's conveyed by any ad that could be challenged <laughs> in our forum uh, and make that sort of the barrier to entry to, to advertising self-regulation. It's supposed to be a, a much more quick and workable process, uh, our, our review. And so we don't require a survey. We go through this exercise of stepping into the shoes of the reason of reasonable consumers, maybe, is how we should put it. And it's kind of a necessary part of the process. So let's walk through that now and sort of maybe give some insights into how we do that. Right. You know, the, the entire advertising industry would just grind to a halt if, if the threshold of entry w was that high. Um, so we start by making sure, you know, first things first, we're not looking at the words of a challenge claim or of a challenge advertisement in a vacuum. Advertising messages are more than just words on a piece of paper. So we view these claims in the context of the whole advertisement, which you know, includes any audio or imagery that might accompany any specific words. Yeah, I, you know, I think the classic context case that I've worked on, like so in my memory, the one that always sort of pops into, into my head. I had a few years ago a case about a chocolate candy product, and it was the packaging that was challenged, and it was a, a television commercial. And these candies were basically jelly beans, uh, I mean, uh, made with fruit juice, um, but they had sort of the texture, they, they somehow made it where the texture was that of dried fruit, and they were chocolate covered. And so the challenger contended that all of the advertising made it seem like this was a chocolate-covered dried fruit and not um, a chocolate-covered fruit-flavored candy. And when it came to the commercial, there was this sort of bucolic scene in a field of strawberry and blueberry bushes with chefs in a pavilion chopping up 
berries and and cooking them down and and basically making these chocolates um with fresh fruit and you know we allow fruit images in advertising that doesn't have actual fruit in it because it can connote a flavor but here um the context with the the overwhelming fresh fruit imagery and sort of the the nature of the advertisement itself we said conveyed the message that this product is made from fruit and that consumers would take away reasonably the message that this is a chocolate covered fruit candy not a chocolate covered fruit flavored candy and uh so we we said they should modify or discontinue the commercial and um i mean no knock on the candies themselves they were delicious um and they they <laughs> did taste i mean like they're like when you took a bite into it it had that chewiness of a dried fruit but that's sort of not the point the, the point is the advertisement and uh sort of that that overwhelming fruit imagery uh we said was context enough to make consumers think that this was a a product that was made out of fruit right and i think that kind of illustrates an important point about context because you know it's there's context that's kind of internal or specific to the advertising and there's also context that's external and kind of talks about you know the placement of the advertisement in the world so you know we also have to consider external factors like the audience for the advertisement the marketplace the sort of reality on the ground for the product category um i think a really good example of that would be vulnerable audiences which is something that nad cares uh, you know a whole lot of a whole lot about and many instances particularly in our monitoring cases we are seeing claims that are targeted to consumers for you know for a variety of reasons who might be desperately seeking the solution that the advertiser seems to be offering um i think a good example of that is a monitoring case that we brought a couple years ago it was the product was an infant sock monitor so it's a product that's designed to track the heart rate and oxygen levels of newborn babies and so nad determined that the sort of express claims were supported in other words you know the product did what it was supposed to do it accurately read this data that wasn't the problem um nad was concerned about implied messages that the product could prevent sudden infant death syndrome or sids basically you know it wasn't just about the the express claims that were promising to you know provide certain data to parents but it was surrounded by other texts and claims you know like know your baby and know they're okay and peace of mind at a glance and kind of in this context where you know there was something more being implied the reality is you know parents especially first time parents of an infant you know they are a particularly sensitive and sleep deprived audience you know they're kind of frazzled and flustered and it was just you know a, a new parent that's you know actively seeking you know every tool in the toolbox to get some reassurance that their child is going to be okay 
might not view these claims, especially with all that kind of stuff around it, with anywhere near the level of skepticism that the average everyday consumer might. So that has to be taken into consideration when we're thinking about, you know, what kind of message is being conveyed. That's for sure. And uh, I definitely remember <laughs> from personal experience, not with this product, but with just sort of that sort of um, uh, mentality, I, I can I can assure that it's, I hope it's reasonable or else I have a problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny because this, is, this applies right very recently to a lot of our monitoring cases on COVID where we're all the vulnerable audience, right? Who are worried about sort of, uh, coronavirus uh, in various times and at different levels of, of anxiety, right? Um, and you have lots of products making immunity claims and then hinting at the coronavirus pandemic and everything else around it. And, you know, that's, we, we found that there was a number of products with implied messages about COVID efficacy that were separate and apart from the express messages. You know, I mean, listen, there's lots of case-specific nuances and iterations of how context can impact what messages are conveyed to consumers. I mean, most of our cases or many of our cases have this element to them. Um, so we can't go over all that now. I mean, there's plenty of other examples we can give that would give a little different insight, but hopefully these examples have been helpful in showing the audience how we go through this determination. Right. I think this would be a great time to bring out our special guest. Uh, joining us today, our first ever podcast guest is Professor Meg Campbell. Professor Campbell is a professor at the University of California, Riverside. She has undergraduate degrees in psychology and economics from Stanford University and a PhD from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Professor Campbell's research focuses on consumers as intuitive psychologists who wonder and make inferences about what they see in the marketplace. She examines when and how consumers consider the reasons for companies, brands, or other consumers' behaviors. Her research has been published in a variety of journals, and she is currently editor of the Journal for Consumer Research. Welcome, Professor. We're so excited to have you join us today. Well, thank you so much, LaFoya. I'm glad to be here. Yes, happy to have you here, Professor Campbell. Um, we definitely are excited about your insights into how consumers interpret advertising. So, you know, as you, I'm just going to jump right into some questions for you. As we just talked about, uh, us at NAD uh, do our best to ensure that advertisers have supported all of the reasonable messages conveyed by their advertising, not just those that they intended. And we know that you've done a lot of research into how consumers approach and process advertising messages. So maybe just give us uh, some insights into how, when presented with an advertisement, whether it be a TV commercial or a social media ad, you know, what's the consumer's mindset? How do they approach this content? Where are consumers coming from when they're viewing ads? That's a great question, Hal. And like so many great questions, I think the answer starts with it depends. 
Um, and the first- You're already a lawyer. That's like the lawyer's number one. <laughs> the question, answer to everything. Okay. And academics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the biggest thing it depends on is whether or not consumers know that what they're seeing is an advertisement or a marketing message that's coming from someone with kind of this intent or goal to persuade for a marketing reason. And the reason that matters so much is that that consumers or people more generally really respond to messages differently, have a different mindset if they know that it is persuasive intent for a marketer versus if it's, you know, you're talking to your friend or you're talking to even your company that has a very different approach. Um, and so it's important to know whether or not consumers know that something is a marketing communication. So, you know, we often have cases where there's like an issue as to whether or not there's like a disclosure, this is an ad, but there's also sort of, even when they know it's an ad, there's elements of advertising that is an advertiser telling them a thing about a product or a service. And there's also sort of, as we alluded to in some of our examples, other elements of the, of the advertising. So do consumers, even within that sort of framework of knowing, seeing an advertisement, view the different sort of elements of the ad differently? Absolutely. And, and just to, to develop a little bit what you're saying, with when people do know it's an advertisement, one of the things that that matters for the mindset is that people have a little bit more um, of a tendency to bring their skeptical hat um, or filter to play when they know it's an advertisement. But then what you're talking about is, is that um, what advertisers are often doing is trying to create something that's so engaging that maybe people put that skepticism back away. And when you think about imagery, um, imagery is very powerful. There's a lot of evidence that images and sounds are processed more quickly um, and more, so they really get the primary processing from a consumer than the words, right? We're all very visually oriented, even people like me who is also word oriented. Um, those, those images can be very powerful and have a strong impact on how people interpret what else is involved um, in that communication and have a, a strong impact on memory. So Latoya was talking about context and how the context can really affect, and that's part of that context, right? Where the interpretation of the actual expressed claims can be really influenced by these powerful images, by the music, if it's a, a visual audio representation as well, and can really um, tap into consumers' Um, emotional responses and have a very strong impact on interpretation and memory. That's really interesting. I think one of the things that we often um, make recommendations about is how an advertisement can possibly limit or narrow the message being conveyed by making some sort of disclosure to accompany, you know, an image or, you know, some other element of the advertisement. But it sounds like, you know, that depends on how powerful the image or, you know, the message that's coming from the image. And also, if you're looking at the image and also trying to read, you know, that there might be some discord there. Is that, 
is that kind of the way the brain works that maybe if you're so focused on the image that you just don't have time or mental capacity to also, you know, read the disclosure and <laughs> kind of digest it all, you know, in a 15 minute, you know, commercial or, or even 15 seconds sometimes. Right. So that this, uh, that it's this, this quick, um, we think a lot about motivation, opportunity and ability to process. And um, I think one of the things you're talking about there is this notion that there's typically limited opportunity for somebody to process and you're taking some of those resources with the imagery in a way that can distract. And there's lots of evidence that shows that, that, that if you just like look at what people remember, um, they remember the images way more than they remember the actual spoken claims that are in there because that's just so powerful for the way we process. So it can distract and take away um, or again, very importantly, modify what is interpreted uh, with those images. Wow. That's, it's like, that's so relevant to so much of what we do because a lot of times when it comes to our, how, how we sort of, ask advertisers to modify their ads has to do with whether or not they add those modifications, particularly in a television commercial, in the visuals or in the audio and uh, or, or both, right? And I think to your point, that's clearly a relevant difference uh, when, when an advertiser is trying to, to modify an ad to, to make it convey only the, the supported messages. Yeah, it seems, it, it makes me think about your example, Hal, in terms of the the candy and the extent to which it was fruit candy or fruit flavored candy. Uh, it sounds from what you're saying, a lot of that was really the imagery and that the imagery really conveyed, may have conveyed to people that this was made from fruit um, as opposed to from some extracts or something. Yeah, yeah, de definitely. So, so another thing that, that often comes up in our cases, and we're often sort of confronted with arguments uh, from, from parties and their, their, their counsel, is that sometimes we get ads where there's an, a product benefit or a product uh, attribute that has sort of some sort of limitation in its availability to individual consumers. Uh, maybe in telecom, uh, a service isn't available to, to everybody or in everybody's area. And there's, there's lots of other examples as well where this comes up. So, you know, and, and they say that consumers aren't going to understand in this argument that counsel make to us, the limitations of the availability of a product or service, just, just based on the fact that it's being advertised to them at all. Um, so what is academia have to say about, about that, right? Uh, about any insights into how consumers interpret uh, the messages that consumers might take away with this sort of scenario where there's like a, a limitation to the availability of a product or service, or should more, more, more actually the availability of, of the particular benefit uh, that's being promoted in the ad. So that's very interesting. There's a, there's a concept called Gricean maxims or Gricean norms. And this is from a bunch of research that was done by Grice. Um, but what, what, he really showed and what you know we tend to to find repeatedly is that people approach interactions with other people marketers included in that other people bucket with the idea that if they're telling him something they're telling him something because it's relevant to them so if you tell me a story about 
the fruit flavored chocolates, I assume that how you're telling me something that you think is relevant to my understanding um, and that I should take that approach and, and think how I can best use that information. And so what we see is that when, when advertisers include information, consumers tend to assume that that's relevant to the consumer. And in your example, then they think, well, I can get that, right? I'm being told about this benefit of a product um, or this attribute or this product. People tend to assume then that that's relevant and that that means that they can get it. Um, it's also not just with, with what you're talking about in terms of those limitations. People assume that just if you're telling about an attribute, that it's a good attribute, right? That if that, that, that you wouldn't be telling me this as a marketer. And so like there was a really interesting, some really interesting research that showed that if you just make up something like Alpine loft down and you say you have Alpine loft down, then people interpret that as saying, oh, well that's better down, right? They're telling me about that. And they're telling me about that because that's relevant to me. And why would that be relevant? It would be relevant because it's better. Um, and so you get these, this, this interpretation which is sort of interesting with what I was saying about skepticism before, right? Because people know it's persuasion, but consumers also think that it's relevant persuasion, that um, there's a reason for uh, the, the, the information that marketers are conveying. I feel like that makes me feel very vindicated because we <laughs> often kind of question advertisers, you know, when they've, they've said something um, in in an ad and and we get the argument, you know, we we just said that it didn't really mean anything. <laughs> it's pretty often kind of, you know, to us it seems very logical. Well, you said it for a reason. You said it because you were trying to, you know, you weren't just uh, you know, being, you know, in the interest of educating <laughs> the the consumer. You you said it because you wanted them to know this information for uh some reason and and for it to be you know, uh, associated with your product and, and therefore that it's a good thing. So I'm glad to know that there's some research out there somewhere backing up that proposition. Absolutely. And I definitely want to get myself one of those Alpine loft down jackets uh, for next winter. <laughs> sounds, sounds great. <laughs> so as you know, and kind of as you heard us talking earlier here at NAD, we often try to step into the shoes of the reasonable consumer, which kind of begs the question, you know, is that even a thing, you know, meaning, is there a way to try and view an ad from, you know, a perspective like that, given that there are just so many different kind of biases and preconceived beliefs that the general population might be bringing to their, you know, viewing of an advertisement. Do you have any insight or, you know, kind of ad advice for us as we continue with that approach? Yeah. So if you think about um, what I talked about with the motivation, opportunity, and ability, I think that really plays into this part of it and thinking about the reasonable consumer. And I loved that you talked about the fact that you think about the context, the way people are processing, the way people are likely to be processing um, as part of really understanding how a reasonable consumer might interpret it. And um, to, to sort of, you were talking to some degree about uh, the opportunity that's there, which I think is really important. You mentioned vulnerable consumers and there's a lot of, you know, you can think about it on the extremes. Like if you think about children, which is a different, 
you know, subcomponent of the marketplace, but they're clearly vulnerable and they clearly have um, different levels and uh, of processing that's going to come into play where when you're in their littler shoes, you're going to be thinking about the reasonable consumer and, and how they're going to be responding to communications differently than if you're looking at, you know, a, a target audience of technology workers or of lawyers or people who maybe you're going to have more time, more processing capacity, um, and maybe therefore more kind of quote unquote reasonableness. But even with people, you know, going back to what you're talking about with the imagery, you think about the distraction factor that can be in any communication that also influences, as you said, the use of heuristics, the use of biases, you know, what, how is somebody who is, you know, maybe in their living room with three kids running around and the YouTube ad is coming on while they're also trying to figure out what they were going to get for dinner and how they're handling work from home. Well, there's a lot of limitations to the processing that's there that could also really help with that understanding of how a reasonable consumer in their reasonable life experiences are going to be thinking about processing and devoting time to interpreting the message. That is certainly uh, helpful. Um, so uh, Professor Campbell, is there anything else you wanted to add for our listeners who are you know, mostly practitioners in advertising and advertising law and who are giving advice to marketers oftentimes in how to go about creating their ads. So on this topic, any, any additional advice that we didn't get to touch on? I don't think I have any deep additional advice. Again, I really like the approach is really useful that you guys take um, to really thinking about the reasonable consumer and how that reasonable consumer is approaching and processing the world. Um, and thinking about the way people are are likely to interpret and understand advertising messages. Great. So thank you so much for joining us, Professor Campbell. This is definitely a fascinating discussion for us, and I believe uh, for our listeners as well. Um, I've been taking notes uh, so that I can better step into the shoes of consumers. Uh, and uh, thank you again. It was really my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was awesome. It, you know, it was such a great discussion. And I love when we get to get a little bit academic on these subjects. It almost made me want to go back to law school. I mean, just <laughs> almost for like a second. But <laughs> Latoya, we gotta get you into the PhD in marketing. So you <laughs> doctor queen of <laughs> communications. <laughs> yes, I definitely learned a lot. Uh, that was definitely awesome. Yeah, we covered a lot today. Um, I think this would be a good time for us to, you know, kind of sum things up with our usual tips and takeaways for our listeners. Um, what are you thinking about, Hal? So, you know, I, I kind of, I, I, I think I might sound a little bit like a broken record from prior episodes, but I, I do think it's sort of an important exercise, which is, I think, it is important for advertisers to step back and when all is said and done, try, try and do what we do when viewing an ad, right? Uh, disassociate a little bit from their role as uh, a persuader and, and look at their advertising from a different perspective and try and step into the shoes of the consumers. 
um, that they're advertising and marketing to and, and see and, and try and understand that they might view their their advertising with, with a different perspective. Um, and then, you know, then you'll have a better idea of what messages you'll need to support with evidence uh, before you disseminate that ad into the world. Right. Um, and, and Professor Campbell, you know, she raised a, a few good points that, you know, I hope that our listeners remember when, you know, they're working on future advertising campaigns. I think one of them is, you know, that people might remember images and, and process images um, better than they do words. And I think this kind of uh, goes back to our discussion about disclosures and kind of how important it is to make sure that you're not overly reliant on, um, you know, kind of excessive, excessively long disclosures or, you know, complicated disclosures that if there's important information, you know, get it into the main part of the advertisement, whether it's, you know, kind of the main message on screen or just, you know, the main audio, because you're, you're trying to make the consumer do many, do too many things, you know, kind of at the same time. And I also, you know, love, again, that point about, you know, if you're telling a consumer something in an advertisement, it, it's understood that you're telling them that because it's relevant to the audience. And so, um, you know, really think about uh, what you're saying, what you're conveying, because it might be, you know, again, you only intended it to apply to a smaller audience, but everybody's watching it. And so everybody might get a message that a message of relevance. And if that's not what you intended, then you have to make sure that you're tailoring your ad in some other way to, to limit that audience. Absolutely. So uh, thank you again to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Ad Watchers. Uh, thank you again to Professor Campbell for joining us and giving us uh, valuable insights into how consumers view ads. We hope you enjoyed this conversation about the reasonable consumer, no, Nick's reasonable consumers um, and all of their <laughs> multitudes. And uh, yeah. Join us next month when we'll be discussing puffery. That is always a really fun subject to talk about. So we're really looking forward to that. As always, you can head over to our website, bbbprograms.org to learn more about what we do at the National Advertising Division or at any of our other self-regulatory programs. That's all for this episode. See you next time. Bye, Hal. Bye, Latoya.